G'day, this is The Policy Shop, a podcast where we think about policy choices, and you can subscribe on iTunes or download us at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. I'm Glenn Davis, and with a federal election called for the 2nd of July and a national government now in caretaker mode, this seems an excellent time to talk about the impact of elections on public policy. It's going to be very important to continue the stable policies that we have in place, and this election will enable us to do it. The whole thrust of our policy is to attack the twin evils of unemployment and inflation together. We'll abolish the carbon tax, so power prices and gas prices will go down. We will continue to invest in and reform health. We will abolish conscription forthwith. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. I ask the Prime Minister, if you are so confident about your view of fight back, why won't you call an early election? Because, mate... Because... Order. The answer is, mate, because I want to do you slowly. I want to do you something. No, no. I know. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. No, no. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. And on the psychological battle stakes, we are stripped down and ready to go. Ah, politicians in election mode. Their announcements fill our screens and airwaves as they jockey to win hearts, minds and votes with policy promises. But how do elections affect public policy? Economist and former head of the Treasury, Ken Henry, famously argued that pending elections mean, and I quote, a greater than usual risk of the development of policy proposals that are, frankly, bad. So to discuss this greater than usual risk, I'm delighted to welcome two distinguished guests, Lisa Paul is a former senior Australian public servant and policymaker. Until February this year, she was the Secretary of the Federal Department of Education and Training, where she worked under five Prime Ministers and nine Cabinet Ministers. Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Glyn. Thank you very much. And it's great also to be joined by Dr Scott Brenton, a political scientist and joint leader of the Melbourne School of Government's Renewing Australian Federalism Research Program. Scott recently co-edited the volume Constitutional Conventions in Westminster Systems. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for the invitation. Lisa, I'm keen to start with the mechanics of policies and elections and then widen the picture to how electoral contests influence policy content. So let's start with something very specific. What is the role of a federal agency during an election campaign? Sure. Well, number one, public policymakers call it caretaker period. This is the nice jargon term. Every normal person calls it an election. But no, we call it a caretaker period. That's because the government's gone into technically a thing called caretaker mode. And what happens is we can't do anything which would fetter the decisions of an incoming government of either side. We can't sign big contracts. We can't come out with new things. Uh, What we can do, though, as public policymakers, is sit back. We've actually got a bit of time. And, of course, in this campaign, there's quite a lot of time. It's a long campaign 
to think of long-term policy issues, uh, innovative policy issues and so on. That's one thing that's always nice to try to do during caretaker. Our formal responsibilities during caretaker, though, are about preparing the incoming government briefs. And so we prepare the red book and the blue book, the red book for Labor and the blue book for a coalition government, and we look at the long-term policy issues, but we in particular look at what commitments they are coming out with and how we might implement them. So what if a minister wants advice on a policy question during caretaker? We can give factual advice. We can't give an opinion We can't not, and we can't give advice in the normal way that we would, but we can give facts. And the opposition? If they ask, yes, absolutely. Scott Brenton, staying briefly with the mechanics, can you say something about these caretaker conventions? Where do they arise and how do they operate? Sure. Just before that, I was actually wanting to pick up on what Lisa was talking about. I took some of my policy students to the Department of Primary and Cabinet, and one of the questions that arose is what happens if other parties were to get in? So at this stage, they're talking about the Greens. I mean, can you see in the uh, years to come maybe a Green book or other books coming up, (laughs) uh, particularly if there was the prospect of a coalition um, and what that might mean for policy, or is at this stage just the two? Well, of course, the most interesting caretaker period in my secretaryship was the caretaker period in 2010 because it was a hung parliament. And so on election night, in the normal way, you know who the government is and you know which book you're finalising and which book you're not. Of course, we didn't. And that went on for 17 days. And it was clear that if Labor took the independence with them and formed a minority government, which in the end they did, they would want to pay close attention to the Greens' policies. Mm-hmm. So for the Red Book in particular, we looked at the policies that the Greens had come out with. Um, haven't done a Green Book yet. Uh, that would mean that they have the numbers to take government in the House of Representatives. That's not likely in possibly my professional lifetime. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, can you know, receive, I'm not a pundit, so I don't know. Can they receive briefings or those factual they briefings? They can. But even during caretaker period, the caretaking government approves what can go. Sure. In other words, they approve, they approve the fact that it can go. So they know it's going if we're briefing another party, but they don't know what we're saying. But once again, it's only factual. Yeah. But to return to your question, Glenn, so... You know, much of our political system comes from Westminster, Britain, where there's no written constitution. So it's basically all based on these unwritten conventions. And so our constitution has written elements describing the federal system that we borrowed from the United States, but a lot of these other parts, such as the caretaker convention, such as the prime minister, such as forming government, all of those things are subject to convention. So that's why uh, during that campaign in the uh, or the 2010 election when people were saying, well, what do we do? What do we do? It's not written anywhere. Of course it's not written anywhere because it's subject to, con- to widely understood convention. Can you say something about the red and blue books that Lisa has introduced? How do they operate? That's good. I mean, I have, personally haven't worked in the in the public service, so I think both of you would have a, <laughs> a, great, um, a better idea. Glyn, do you have... Yes, in, in Queensland, uh, where I worked uh, in the Premier's Department, uh, we would prepare incoming government briefs, and the Queensland at the time had a very strange tradition, which was that the head of the Premier's Department would go to the tally room, when we had tally rooms, with two letters, one congratulating the Premier on being re-elected and one congratulating the opposition leader, and you would sit in this private room at the back of the tally room waiting until you made the judgment that it was time to hand over the envelope. I don't think that's done at Commonwealth level. 
No, that's not done at Commonwealth level. Um, but as soon as the losing side concedes on the night, or some, mostly on the night as <laughs> instead of 2010, uh, then the next day I'll ring... You know, as a secretary, I would always ring whoever it was that I thought would be my minister. I'd congratulate them. If it was a change of government, I'd ring the outgoing government and, and congratulate them and wish them all the best, the people that I work most closely with. But usually these days what happens is, uh, even if a government's returned, is that briefings are held until the ministry's sworn in. And generally that's within the week after the election. And then, then I've got the, the relevant book, so the other book... The losing book is never finished and I've got the relevant book in my hand with a letter from me and I'll go up and brief the minister, returning minister, new minister, new government, whatever, one-on-one, -on -one, usually on the day that they're sworn in. So let's turn our mind then to a new government and to the way policies are made. Lisa Paul, it's been said that politicians campaign in poetry but govern in prose. They govern through policies, <laughs> which are written statements of intent designed to give practical effects to philosophies and principles. In an ideal world, and Scott teaches about this, these policies would be developed through a careful cycle of identification and analysis and testing and evaluation and refinement. But election campaigns are not like that. Governments and oppositions just announce intentions to do things, often without any of the rigour that you might expect around a policy. Can you compare your experience of policy making between elections and policy making in elections? Well, it's the same process, except that during an election campaign, either side, yes, you're absolutely right, doesn't have to have gone through a cabinet process and so on. However, however, normally they will have gone through their own policy making processes. It's just not informed so much by us, I suppose. Uh, and that these days, through the Charter of Budget Honesty, they've got to front up to how much it costs and where they're going to get it from, <laughs> where they're going to get the funding from. Um, and when you look at it, a lot of the, even in this, you know, let's look at the current election campaign, a lot of these policies have been announced in the budget or before. They're quite big things, superannuation's a big thing, uh, and so on. And then you can get, in any election campaign, um, things that come up for a particular MP, for example. Somebody yeah. might announce something in their electorate, and that will have been through relevant processes too, but not close to the public sector. So what happens if a policy proposal is frankly unworkable? What happens when governments get elected having committed to things that you as a professional know can't be done? Um, that's actually incredibly rare okay, in my experience. Hear, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the important thing is the policy ambition. You know, what's a policy? A policy is a solution to a problem or a policy is a way of meeting an aspiration. And a government will come in on a platform, even a returning government, with aspirations. And they may also announce how they want to meet that aspiration and that might be the tricky bit. That's, you, you know, that's really what you're saying, yeah. that they're saying, okay, we want to achieve X, but the way we want to achieve X, well, from our point of view as policymakers may not be actually may achieve something perverse that they haven't thought about, they haven't had time to think about. And we'll go up and say, look, we know you want to achieve X, but think of these other ways to do it. So, Scott, do you observe differences between the cycle? 
Mm, that's a, a really interesting question. I, I think I broadly would agree with with Lisa in sort of saying that, yes, a lot of the policymaking, at least in political parties, it does go on behind the scenes. We're never exposed to it. We don't see where the genesis of the idea is. And even in you know, party conferences or any sort of public displays, it's still quite tightly stage managed. So I think the, and again, party rooms, that's a, a great arena for discussion. I mean, if we could get some cameras in there and some microphones in there, I think we would, I think that would actually enliven democracy and draw pe- more people in because we would see that there is much more debate and much more consideration of ideas. I think, I guess, the broad difference between an election campaign and other times is just it's a higher risk during an election campaign. So you, I think you're going to get more of the very sort of superficial responses to policy. I think one of the big differences between Australia and some other countries is parties typically don't have very detailed manifestos, such as in the United Kingdom. They don't sort of articulate their program for the next few years in government. So they try to be as sort of as general and I guess as vague as possible to leave as much sort of wriggle room. Um, I think another difference um, between sort of European countries which have proportional representation systems and, and coalitions are more likely is when they go to form those coalitions, they will also agree to a policy platform over the next few years. So given that difference in Australia, we then don't see the sorts of differences between a campaign and regular cycle. So I'm going to tease that apart a little bit. So let's start with an example where a government makes a promise to implement a policy and then is unable to do so. And I'm thinking, for example, of the Labor government's emissions trading scheme in, 20, in 2007. The policy clearly helped Kevin Rudd become Prime Minister. It was blocked in the Senate by the Greens and the opposition and two independents. What are the ethics in this case and what are the expectations on a government which finds it cannot deliver a core election promise? Well, part of being of delivering an election promise is actually getting it through the parliament, and that's yeah. that's all governments need to do that. And I think successful governments, and I think Howard was particularly good in this, is you, you're not likely to get through your policy 100% intact or even 90% intact. You do need to deal with the parliament that you have. And Howard had a difficult parliament, but always had a plan B. And in Rudd's case, Rudd didn't have a plan B. And as, as much as the Greens blocked, I mean, he never talked to the Greens. Um, so there was no then option once he didn't have the numbers to then go and pursue a different avenue. And I think that was intentional. A lot of the time, governments will blame it on the Senate, quite simply because they don't actually want to get their policy through. <laughs> Lisa, you <laughs> men- Lisa, you mentioned the election of 2010, a yeah. fascinating time for us. So there's a government, in effect, an incoming government, having to repudiate its own policies in order to put up the policies that it agreed to in order to form government. So the, there'll never be a carbon tax become, there will be... Uh, a carbon tax trading scheme. <laughs> maybe there will be. Uh, maybe there will be. Now, that's, that's the reality of creating a minority government. That's right. But can you tell us something about that experience? How does a government go through that process of, of having to rethink on the run, essentially, a whole lot of commitments? It's just given to the people. Yeah. Any government having to form a coalition of some sort or an alliance of some sort to take minority government goes through this. So New Zealand has to do it all the time. Uh, state governments do it much more frequently. You know, I'd never, I'd never done it in federal government before. And while, it, because it is federal government and affects the whole nation, 
you know, a lot's been written about it, a lot's been said and so on. But actually, it's not an unusual thing to go through at all for a government. No, the Republic of Ireland's just gone several months without a government. Yeah, that's right. In Belgium, they went for no, almost 20 months from that's 2010 right. without a government. That's right. Yeah. And and what happened? I don't know. Probably the public servants thought this is the best thing ever. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I think the public thought that as well. Oh, did they? <laughs> I, don't, right. I, do. I don't think that would be the case here. Yeah. But, um, you know, you, you just have to be fast and agile and... And the things that you've been talking about now, the ETS and and the alliance with the Greens and so on in 2010 are all about explaining it. Yeah. You know, you've got to explain it to people uh, to make sense. Look, this is why we're doing it. And, uh, and that's quite hard to do. Scott, some of your recent research has been on minority governments. How different are minority governments in the policy process and how much does this change the balance of how policy is made? Yeah, I think in Australia it's been particularly challenging because we haven't been used to it at a federal mm. level. So as Lisa mentioned, at a state level, it's been very common. And um, contrary to predictions at the start, the sky doesn't fall in. We don't have crises. They generally last until the end of the period. Uh, they generally deliver on a lot of their policy commitments, get a lot of legislation through. Uh, in many other countries, and certainly in comparable countries like the United Kingdom, like Canada, it's um, well, in Canada it's more frequent, and in the UK they had a coalition government after the 2010 election as well. I think the key difference in Australia compared to comparable countries is in the government formation phase, we don't tend to get the sort of detailed policy agreements that we get in places like the United Kingdom. So in 2010, there was a coalition government between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, and they actually mapped out what they were going to do over the five-year term quite clearly, and they identified um, areas of disagreement and what they would do um, in those scenarios. Here we tend to find that most of the agreements are around things like parliamentary reform and about democratic accountability and enhancement of accountability. And we get maybe one or two things that are actually on policy from the very, whether it's an independent or the Greens. Uh, a lot of legislation did get through under the Gillard government, but uh, Labor didn't actually back out on a lot of their policy commitments to the minor parties and the independents. And they were able to do that because you know, after one, two years, um, what were the independents and Greens going to do? By that stage, Abbott had burned bridges with them, so they weren't going to back Abbott. So then it was on them, are you going to bring down a government over those particular issues? So I think the key is, and the lesson to be learned here, is that if parties or independents want to get a policy agenda through, they need to ensure that they get it early in the term and they need to ensure that it's included in the agreement. But other than that, um, there are advantages. The big advantage to the Labor Party and why they said they did the agreement with the Greens is the Greens also, they also needed the Greens in the Senate. So they were able to, in a way that other governments haven't done, in sort of get broad agreement on a program because ultimately whether there's a minority in the House of Reps or a Senate, the practical affects the same. You know, the thing about a minority government at federal level is that the Greens and independents had just as much skin in maintaining that coalition, that alliance, as yeah. the Labor government did. Maybe more, because their futures were dependent on that. And, you know, you saw both Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor go uh, in the 2013 election. And my experience in Queensland, again, a minority government, was mm. it meant senior public servants spent a lot more time with parliamentarians than they would normally do because it was necessary to go and brief parliamentarians about particular pieces of legislation or initiatives in order 
uh, that the government could be confident had any chance of getting it through. It, mm. it also changed the dynamics for the public mm. service. Yeah. Mm. Maybe we'll see that after the 2nd of July. I want to move to the more philosophical question about whether elections are the enemy of good public policy. Now, Lisa, you've served both sides of politics uh, and you served it in education, seeing initiatives in introduced by one party and dropped immediately by their successors in a period of what was very rapid turnover of ministers, prime ministers, and particularly education ministers. Did this lead you to despair for the prospects of long-term <laughs> public policy? Well, qu quite the opposite, actually. It leads me to have great optimism for the robustness of our democracy. <laughs> you know, the way I look at this is that they're elected and I'm not. Okay. They're elected and I'm not. Yeah. And so they come in on a mandate to do things on behalf of the Australian people, and that's what they want to do. I would give you the, the most telling example of complete change following uh, a change of government is in 2007, the change from work choices to forward with fairness, which was in my department. And so exactly the same public servants who had diligently prepared the legislation and done all the policy work for work choices, then turned around, you know, on the head of a pin and instantly went into diligently implementing the Labor government's platform for industrial relations called Forward with Fairness. Um, exactly the same people, completely new legislation, completely new, completely new things. Sometimes programs are walked away from and, uh, you know, and I mean on a smaller level, and that can be a shame if, say, they're too new under the previous government to really be evaluated. You know, maybe they would have been great, but they've been walked away from. But, you know, an incoming government has a different philosophy and it should have the right to do what it wants to do. If I could just jump in there, because I think um, Lisa was being very modest earlier, sort of saying in election campaigns, we sort of sit back and... Um, I think one of the great features of, of Australia and many other countries is just the professionalism of mm. the public service. And I think that's underestimated. So we talk, we focus so much on politicians and on changes of prime minister, changes of ministers. But as Lisa mentioned, or as you mentioned in the introduction, Glenn, you know, serving five different prime ministers, nine different ministers, um, that's incredibly challenging. And yet, you know, we still function, we still have a very sort of well-governed society. You only have to travel to other countries to realise how well-governed it is. And, and that's because we have, you know, good public sectors uh, and, and good civil services that ensure that continuity whilst we have this rapid change in, in executive members. Which may raise the question, Scott, how much of the policy agenda is really on the table in an election? Are elections symbolic clashes over emphasis disguising effectively agreement on policy choice, or is it the case that we implement policies and then tear them up, depending on the electoral cycle? Yeah, yes, yes and no. That's a really big question. I guess to go to your earlier question, which is slightly easier, <laughs> about you know whether the elections sort of get in the way. But we've got to remember public policy, the first part of it, public. Um, we can't just ignore the public. And as much as we might not like public opinion on certain things or we might dismiss it as populism or other thing, I mean, that's a very, that's a key point. I mean, ultimately, these policies are meant to be serving a public. And um, yes, I don't necessarily always agree with majority public opinion, but then that's the role of leaders then to go in and through debate, through discussion, etc., sort of work with that and change that. And so, 
elections, I think, are a very important part. And uh, as much as they might be sort of, I guess, dumbing down politics in many ways, I think that's more the fault of the, the politicians rather than the public. I think it's often just, you know, blamed on the public or blamed on the media, etc. But the politicians are very much in control of that. Um, and I think it suits them to have an election campaign that's driven by emotion rather than reason. During an election campaign, all of the parties are trying to accentuate difference. Yeah. We couldn't be more different from them. <laughs> it's the ultimate us and them, isn't it? Yeah. So as the Secretary of a Department, how much of your agenda was actually in play during an election campaign? Oh, lots. You know, running education, everybody cares about education, don't they? And when I had education, employment, workplace relations, uh, it was a huge part. I had childcare, et cetera, et cetera. Almost everything was up for grabs in one way or another. Okay, well, but even though even though differences are accentuated during campaigns, often governments will, you know, on a change of government, which is the, the most interesting point, I suppose, in, when you think about change of policy, uh, will continue some of the fundamentals. You often don't see the fundamentals change. You often see the philosophical approach change to something. Well, let's take a specific example. Mm. Let's take the funding of schools, yep. which has been highly contested through a series of elections. Mm-hmm. How much is this policy area influenced by the choices made in elections? How significant is it in elections? And would the policy be different if it were sort of framed in a different way? Well, it depends on the election, depends on the nature of the campaign, depends yeah. on what's gone before. I mean, that, what's gone before is actually incredibly important. And I think people kind of tend to think public policy gets completely remade every time there's an election or in particular every time there's a change of government. It's not the, it's not the case. So, for example, the capacity to even have a needs-based funding model for schools uh, could not have happened if it weren't for the My School website collecting certain information and putting information up transparently for parents and kids. So reforms build on reforms. So you see a cumulative policy framework mm. in part being built here. Mm. Um, yes, of course, there are philosophical differences. Um, so, for example, in schools funding in the 2013 election, there were really quite significant, leaving aside the amounts of money, which are always contested, there were significant differences between Labor's requirement that states match funding and the coalition's philosophy that states are their own entities and should go off and do their own thing. Um, it's interesting, this this campaign in the budget, the coalition minister, Simon Birmingham, has said that states and others, people that deliver schooling, would be held accountable for outcomes, you know, for for actually measuring if kids mm. do better. And I think that's a very significant um, factor as well with a federal system. We're never under just one government, particularly in health and education. So whilst there's this election cycle going on federally, much of the service delivery in this area is done by the state government. And that, of course, continues because we don't have state and federal government um, elections running at the same time. So that also ensures a level of continuity. And particularly if you're in, in the federal arena, if you're wanting to enact major reforms, you do have to work with with all of the states. Um, but I actually wanted to turn the question to Glyn here <laughs> as a vice-chancellor, and given that higher education is such a contentious area of policy, how do you find it in election campaigns? Is this an opportunity to try and be influencing the policy agenda on, on higher ed, or has it already been decided by this point? I think you can argue 
a number of different panels, you can say looking in the very long run, higher education policy was set by John Dawkins in 1989 and everything has been a minor variation since. Despite a number of attempts to actually break down that system, this, the logic has maintained and overridden the 13 or 14 higher education ministers we've had since then. None of them have had the impact that John Dawkins did in setting the rules. Not for want of trying, certainly in the last term of the parliament, uh, Christopher Pine had a go at completely changing the rules and failed. Mm. Uh, but I guess the interesting example is if you go to the detail, it really does matter who wins, that the system changes quite dramatically depending on the winners and losers. It also matters who the minister is in a way mm. that's outside the electoral cycle, but every minister feels they have to do something. It's rare for a minister to arrive and say, I think the settings are about right and I'm going to go for masterful inactivity. So <laughs> we get uh, we get change within the cycle and then we get significant change depending on the cycle. I want to turn the question to an example where a party tried to put up a comprehensive policy framework. And, and I guess the one that resonates for most people is John Hewson and his 1993 fight back, a very detailed platform a goods and services tax, and a range of other economic reforms. And the interesting fight that followed, uh, Paul Keating as Treasurer had attempted to introduce a goods and services tax as Prime Minister, then ran his campaign against a goods and services tax and won. And when we next went to the polls in 1996, the Liberals deliberately adopted a small target strategy, mm -hmm. saying as little as possible about their policy outcomes. So is preparing detailed policies anathema to electoral victory and is there a tension between politics and policy? I would hope not, but I think we can identify many, many examples of where Bowles policy and comprehensive policy has then opened up a party to being attacked and for scare campaigns to be run. However, while I'm I am still optimistic because we do see this happening in a number of different countries around the world where major policy is the subject of elections. I think in the example of Fight Back, and obviously there's many other examples, where I think it came unstuck is that John Hewson was unable to answer questions on the detail of the policy. That's, I think, if you are going to introduce big, bold, comprehensive policy, you really have to ensure that everyone is across the detail and you can answer all of the technical questions around it, not just you, but your party as well. And that's what can make it very, very challenging. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's when you can't go to the next level. Uh, that you're really in trouble. Um, and both, I reckon both ways work. You know, so you saw in 1998, John Howard actually did go with GST platform and narrowly won. He almost might have lost. Uh, it was a high-risk strategy, but he got it through and it's worked and we still got it. Uh, Mike Baird recently in New South Wales went on quite a comprehensive and quite radical policy platform of privatisation. On the other hand, governments have come in on the back of small target approaches too. So are there ways we can encourage more policy content in electoral debates? Uh, my own view is preparation long in advance. It, it, in my view, it's, it, we're so cyclical in government. You know, the first budget is a budget about implementing election commitments. The second budget is the one where you do radical things. <laughs> and the third one is a budget about election commitments for the upcoming budget because we've got a three-year cycle. If you can get in advance of the upcoming election, uh, and actually the work on superannuation from both sides, because both sides have come out and said things about superannuation and what they reform is, is probably representative of that. That would have taken quite a lot of work on both sides and it would have been going on for a while. And don't think an election campaign starts 
the day the writs come down either, when the Prime Minister drives off to Government House. Uh, in my experience on any election year, the first commitment, that is, we will do this if we are elected slash re-elected, comes out in about January. <laughs> <laughs> so let's think about the scope for really brave policies. Um, no doubt you remember a promise made by Bob Hawke in his campaign speech at the Sydney Opera House in June 1987. By 1990... No Australian child will be living in poverty. Now, in practice, Bob Hawke strayed from his script, which actually said, by 1990, no Australian child need live in poverty. It's a very big difference, and Hawke has since said that that statement is one of his greatest regrets. But, Lisa, should we applaud the ambition or condemn the overreach? Well... The, the correct phrase was so much better. <laughs> that was the ambition. That was the aspiration. What I said, policy is about achieving aspiration. The statement was overreach, and but it was mistaken overreach, and it cost him. And Scott, what are the consequences when politicians announce policy they really can't deliver? Well, I think this is a dilemma here because we would hope, and this also goes back to our own personal values. So if uh, a politician or a political party promises something that we like, we then expect them to deliver on it and we're upset when they don't. But if they announce something that we don't like, we would hope that they listen to us and change their policy position. So I think it comes down to an intention of when that uh, commitment is made. Now, if they're making the intention sort of knowing that they can't possibly or it's going to be very difficult to implement, I think that's not a good thing. But if they're actually making a commitment because it's something that they genuinely believe in and they then find through working with the public service getting that technical advice that actually it's going to be quite difficult to implement or they, through the election campaign, are talking to lots of constituents uh, and there is opposition to that and then make changes. I think that's a legitimate thing to do. So, But it is a dilemma because where do we draw the line? So is the risk of big claims exacerbated by a relatively short electoral cycle? Yeah, I'm not one that's convinced that longer electoral cycles will necessarily change the dynamics because even with our supposedly short electoral cycles, at least at the federal level, parties continually are changing leaders, changing ministers, etc. So if there were longer cycles, we might just see even more prime ministers and more leaders coming through. And I don't think at the state level, more, most states now have changed four-year terms. Queensland is just about to be the last state to do so. I don't think we're seeing significant differences between policy at the state level and the federal level. I think going back to one of your earlier questions, what can we do to change it? Well, ultimately, we can change it. I mean, we ultimately employ these politicians. I mean, they're on three-year contracts or six-year contracts for the Senate. Um, we should be evaluating their performance and then making a decision at election time on whether to renew that contract. And so if we don't like the politicians that we have, if we don't like the way politics is practised, it's up to us to change it. Your view, Lisa, yeah. is short-term thinking or can three-year cycles be work just fine? Three-year cycles can work just fine if you've got a plan. Uh, and there are several, um, let's say, moves recently which help extend the policy cycle. For example, costings tend to come out for 10 years now, federally. Yeah. At some state levels, there's still only annual budgets. <laughs> Nobody knows what's in front. Um, but the fact that numbers are coming out in terms of, oh, this policy will cost this much or this will ramp over 10 years uh, is actually incredibly helpful. My own view is it's not the three-year cycle that puts pressure on long-term policy being easy to do or good to do. 
um, or make it hard to do, it's the change in media and technology and the pressure of the daily media cycle, which is now less than 24 hours, and the pressures of scrutiny and instant social media scrutiny and so on that politicians face. And all of those things make policymakers, who are ultimately governments, under great pressure. But it also presents an opportunity. So with things like social media, it gives them more of a chance to sure. engage and yes, do those. Does. They're not necessarily doing that and doing that well. <laughs> um, but this is, yeah, there's also opportunities there. So let's bring it home with a return to the mechanics that will guide the weeks between now and the 2nd of July. Lisa, what will be the role of the Australian Public Service over the next six weeks? How will it engage with whatever party wins? And given you're out of the frame, do you miss it? <laughs> well, I decided to, finally, I decided to leave after 11 years as a secretary, which was a long time, uh, to learn new things, to learn new things. You know, I loved the job. It was a privilege every day. And so I miss it in some levels, but because I've done it several times, <laughs> I'm excited by the new challenges too. And Scott, recalling those words from Ken Henry, are elections good or bad for policy choices? Elections are necessary for policy choices, I would say. <laughs> okay. So I've been struck in this discussion by the tone of optimism. You've both argued that despite the constraints of sh relatively short electoral cycles and the populism of elections, that long-term policy thinking is possible, and you've pointed to devices such as long-term forward estimates as ways of committing to programs that are more than just immediate responses to, to sort of public need. It's been a great delight to talk to my guests today. Lisa Paul, former Secretary of the Federal Department of Education and Training. It's been an honour. Thanks, Glenn. And Dr Scott Brenton from the Melbourne School of Government. First time I've been described as an optimist. Thank you. <laughs> Our next episode of The Policy Shop should be a very interesting discussion with Dr John Daly from the Grattan Institute. He joins me to ponder the question, are governments becoming too large? I'm Glenn Davis. I hope you'll join us then. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. And remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016. Thank you.